0: Welcome back to Franklin Covey's weekly podcast on leadership with Scott Miller. That's me. I'm your host and interviewer each week. You may also know me as the author of the Master Mentors series published by HarperCollins, where each year I have the privilege of writing and publishing a new book based on Franklin Covey's on leadership podcast. Master Mentors Volume 1 and Volume 2 are now out both in digital and print also in audio and video books by Lit Video, check them out, where each year I write a easy breezy fast book, kind of like chicken soup for the podcast soul, where with the privilege and permission of 30 guests, I write a chapter about each of the ones I think have a transformational insight, volume three coming out in the fall. Make sure to pick up a copy. I'm very proud of that series to help shine this platform and spotlight on eventually 300 guests, 10 years and 10 volumes. Today's guest is the TikTok sensation. She's known as the career doctor. Her name is Tessa White with, gosh, I don't know, tens of millions of views and followers across every possible social platform. Her name is Tessa White, and her new book is The Unspoken Truths for Career Success, Navigating Pay, Promotions, and Power at Work. Tessa White, welcome to On Leadership. Thank you, Scott. So happy to be here. I just love the fact that you have mastered social media. I mean, you have so many views of great tips and techniques on how to take control of your career. Talk a bit about how your social media presence exploded because you and I are of similar age. We weren't raised with social media. You've done an amazing job to learn how to connect with people who are interested in building their careers. Talk a little bit about your migration as sort of the queen of TikTok.
1: That is the funniest statement I've ever heard, the queen of TikTok. First of all, I am a person who can't log into social media typically. So that's, I'm the most unlikely influencer that ever lived. It really is my daughter that did this for me. She said, mom, your videos are really good. Let's put some on TikTok. I said, I I can't even navigate the thing. So she put my first videos on TikTok. She loaded three of them. And three days later, my son called from California and he said, Mom, I don't think this is possible, but my girlfriend said she saw you on her For You feed. So I went in, I checked, I had 10,000 followers in three days. And I've averaged about 1,000 new followers a day since then. I don't know how. I am not a social media expert. My videos are not high quality, but people seem to be coming and I seem to have at least be addressing a niche that people want to hear about.
0: Well that's why is because you have great content and you're very relatable and approachable. In fact, you've had a remarkable career. Let's talk a bit about the previous 30 years of your career that kind of led you to become one of the world's renowned experts on managing careers. You and I have a connection from the early days with Stephen Covey in the Covey Leadership Center. Talk a bit about how your career got started and kind of where you culminated it to become more of an entrepreneur, an author, an influencer, a TikToker. Talk about some of the early days of your career.
1: Well, I was lucky because Stephen R. Covey, that was my first job, my first real career job. I was the secretary to Bob Thiel at the time, who was running the organization. And I was so lucky to have the influence of Stephen and learn these principles. thats That was my beginning. And then I gradually moved into HR. Uh, at one point, I became a single mom. And I said, oh, my gosh, I've got to put food on the table. I don't have a college degree And I've got to figure out how to do this. And there's two things I do well. I can talk with people and I can type. That was it. So I ended up in benefits in HR and then moved my way through different HR roles until I found myself, if you fast forward, sounds so easy when you fast forward, I was in a Fortune 50 company, United Health Group, running HR for one of their divisions and uh, then made my way to several other companies, the last of which was Vivint Solar. And that was a crazy experience. It was basically 4,000 bros you know with flat brimmed hats and about 10 adults in the room and I was one of them. So I've been an executive at really high levels in companies and helping take companies public and shrinking companies and growing companies. And one day I just woke up and thought I'm not getting any younger. I really have a desire to help people figure this out because I see it from a different perspective. When you see careers rise and fall and you get to hear the conversations behind closed doors, it really changes how you think about how people get ahead.
0: Tessa, you're known to millions as the job doctor. You call them, you write, you blog, you video. You now have a new book out called The Unspoken Truths for Career Success. It's really a great manual on how to manage your career at different phases in organizations. Before I talk about some of the concepts in the book, what has changed post-pandemic with careers. Before you answer that, I was just this morning at a large company headquarters with the CEO, founder, owner of a big company that employs about 1,400 people here in Utah. And they have, uh, I don't know, a couple hundred thousand square feet of office space in this brand new office building, state of the art, everything. And I looked around and there were hundreds and hundreds of workstations and hundreds and hundreds of flat screen monitors and computers. And I kind of said, well, where is everybody? Kind of joking. I said, like I said, it looks like you've overbought here. And he said, no. He said, we have about 1,200 employees, 800 here in the state. And he said, there's about um, 40 that come to the office. But he said, then that's changing quite quickly. You could tell what he meant is the pendulum Mm is swinging and people are going to need to come back into the office for a variety of reasons. We hear a lot about how the pendulum swung really far to one end during the pandemic. Sort of, you know, workers took control, employees took control of more than just their careers, culture, benefits, flexibility, and we see it kind of swinging back now. What Mm -hmm. do you think are some of the uh, prognostications you would make about what's gonna happen in organizations and careers now that we're truly post-pandemic?
1: A few things. First of all, one of my most viral videos, all I said was, they're not coming back. That's all I said. And it had millions and millions of views because everybody knew what I meant. The pandemic accelerated what was already happening. And let me try and explain this as concisely as possible. We have boomers and Xers aging out. You have millennials and Gen Z coming in and they think very, very differently. Uh, First of all, It's more short-term thinking. Secondly, it's much more balanced. This is a generation who says, I'm not gonna die trying, like my generation. We would die trying. This is the bye-bye generation. And they would just as soon leave a company as tell them what's wrong, and they would move around until they found something that feels good for them. They just feel like they have more choices. And you pair that with the burnout that occurred over this change fatigue that happened during the pandemic. If you study burnout at all, the the world's expert says, it's really a lack of control problem when you boil it down. People are not feeling they're in control. And so you see a shift of power where this new generation that's now in the workforce and taking over says, I want a greater balance of power between me and my employer. Whereas my generation, you just, it was top down. You come in, you like the company, join us. If you don't like it, leave, we don't care. But not today. Today they want a balance of power. And I teach people in the book, how do you create a better balance of power? How do you create a partnership?
0: It's so timely you said that. I was talking with my brother-in-law just prior to this interview, literally out in the hall talking to him. And his wife has just left a 20-year career with a financial institution in California. And she's only in her late 30s. She started like out of high school. 20 years she quit because this bank forced her back to the office. Mm -hmm. and she left a 20-year career with one bank and went to another, made more money. I don't know how long she'll stay there, but it's so instructive of exactly what you're saying. You're really saying there's been a huge value shift in this massive demographic in the workforce, and they're not coming back. That's right. They aren't. And in fact, I've said this for many years, but it's really
1: true now, and that is never be more loyal to a company that it can possibly be to you in return. And when I say that, I don't mean don't work hard. I'm not talking about what some people define quiet quitting as. I'm saying you've got to define the boundaries for yourself. And work-life balance does matter. And if you're counting on your company to give it to you, it won't happen because a company will always inherently take as much as you're willing to give. And so this new generation is very attuned to this. And, And it's really shifting us to a period of more humane leadership. And it's going to require a lot of changes from companies and quite frankly, people in order for everybody to get along. Because as you said, that pendulum is swinging back and forth and back and forth right now.
0: Tessa, in the book, you talk a lot about different lies. Lies about promotability, lies about pay, power, leverage, corner office, loyalty. And mm-hmm. one in particular, you talk about the relationship with your manager and your leader. I want to set up a story here and have you riff on it for as long as you'd like. Uh, I retired from Franklin Covey as an executive officer about three years ago. I was here Mm -hmm. for 25 years, and I'm still an ambassador to the firm doing a variety of contracting-type things, including this podcast. I retired as the chief marketing officer and as an EVP. And as a result of being in that position, dozens of people would come to my office from different parts of the organization and say to me the following— I saw an internal job posting. I'm thinking of applying for it. What do you think? And the first question I asked everybody, now again, these were associates in the company, more junior than me. They did not report to me, nor were they in my division. They would walk across the campus and say, I'm thinking of applying for this job. What do you think? And I would always say first, well, tell me, how would your current leader view your performance? Tell me, what would John think about it. Oh my gosh, he'd be my biggest champion. I think he would say that I'm crushing it. I'm super valuable. I think he would give me a super review. And then I would surreptitiously go find John in the lunchroom three days later and not tell him why, but say, hey, how you doing? Whatever. Hey, tell me about Tim. Like, how's he on your team? And they would always say the same thing. Oh goodness. I mean, oh my gosh, total gossip has hit four of the last 12 quarters really so hard to manage. I mean, he's got some strengths, but quite frankly, he's pretty close to being on a performance appraisal. I mean, time after time after time after Mm -hmm. time, the dissonance between how people thought their leaders saw them and how Mm -hmm. their leaders saw them was such a chasm. Talk about how important it is to have real conversations and to be really aware of your performance with your boss and not just fall into the trap of the once a year performance appraisal where they're force ranking you and they're required to have create us conversations that may not be their natural style.
1: One of the biggest truths of the workforce is that we love to think the problem is with everyone else, especially our managers, when we are contributing to one of the biggest problems that happens at work, which is, I call it a halfway conversation. Because we don't talk honest, honestly with each other, and I can sit in a company and just watch this happen, I can come up with 20 examples in one hour then we don't really know where we stand. And I tell a story in the book, um, I was in the room when the CEO was fired. I mean, what an experience. I came in, we were meeting the head of the board, and I thought we were working on stock options, and I'll be darned if they didn't fire the CEO of the company. What was so interesting about that is, I wasn't surprised by it necessarily. I mean, all of us know each other's shortcomings and and weaknesses, but I I think the CEO was surprised. But what surprised me even more is what happened is they they wheeled me into the new CEO. And he led the conversation by saying, "Uh, Tessa, I'm going to have to let go of over half of the executives, and my question for you is, do you need to be one of them? And he proceeded to tell me that I had a reputation for not getting along with sales, and that he couldn't, in good faith, have me in the role that I was in unless I could make that better. I I was stunned, and I realized in that moment that the one person who should know themselves the best, that's me, we're taken by surprise. We don't have a clear view of how we're perceived at work, which is why I tell people you've really got to own your own feedback plan. If you're waiting for your manager to give you honest feedback once a year, it's not going to happen. Besides that, who the heck knows what a meets expectation is, which is what 70% of the people are getting? So... I teach people in the book, how do you create your own top performer plan? How do you mimic what top performers get in the company? Ask for it and then get used to the uncomfortableness of feedback so that you can make course adjustments along the way and get more clear about how you're seen and be clearer on how you are able to talk about yourself, the story about how you market yourself and your accomplishments.
0: I also think there is an expectation that because you're a leader – then you must know how to give great feedback and have high courage conversations and coach in the moment. And that's not always the case. A lot of people get promoted because they're the best individual contributor, not because they're the best leader of people. And so I also think you should be a little more forgiving of your leader. And when you have to take control of that relationship, would you agree with that?
1: Absolutely. I mean, we're all bad at conversations that are difficult, managers included. And, you know, the one thing I know for sure as an HR person is that, A manager usually will come to me and say, I need to let somebody go. And I'll say, do they know it's coming? And the manager will typically say, oh, of course they do. And what I find when I really peel it back is they don't know it's coming. We're just not good as human beings at sharing honest feedback. So managers need to get better at it. And what I tell them is if you start to give feedback more regularly, both good, thank yous, you're doing this well. And then that gives you the license to to put in some harder feedback. It feels more like coaching as opposed to feeling like something punitive. But we shy away from it, managers shy away from it, and they don't typically receive any training on it. And so there we are again, halfway conversations where people aren't on the same page.
0: Tessa, set aside variables such as education, technical competence, and kinda hard to replicate skills. Mm-hmm. set those aside what are the most successful careers have in common you have coached countless thousands of people at early mid and executive stage careers what do the best careers have in common
1: well i would say that the number one thing is a person actually has a career strategy and they learn to speak up there's a direct correlation between speaking up at work and work satisfaction and yet we we think that if we don't speak up, it's gonna help us more. So that's number one. The other thing is, I, I just, I love data so much. And I couldn't figure out why we were always hiring people and then people wouldn't work out. Are we that bad at assessing talent? And I finally made the correlation that people at different levels or stages of their career struggled with the same things. And so the people that were let go were struggling with something that the top performers were doing well, a direct correlation. So there's there's really something for each stage of one's career. But I think the two most common, I call them the gateway skills, you've got to get comfortable with conflict if you want to grow your career and have hard conversations in a way that's not off-putting. And you also need to be able to get buy-in for ideas. That means you have to speak up and you have to be able to pitch ideas. And the higher you go, the quicker or the more of an elevator pitch that you have to make. Those are really, really critical skills to have if you really wanna grow in a company.
0: Tessa, you and I are colleagues and friends outside of this interview here in Utah, and we're about the same age. And it's our age that is typically dominating the senior executive and C-suite in most organizations. Won't be that way forever, but that, you know, the 50 to 60 year old is still for the mm-hmm. most part in the senior level of most organizations. Not every, but most. Speak to that audience for a member. Speak to the millions of Scott Millers listening to right now that grew up where if you had five jobs in a 30-year, you were a pariah. Like You would even interview someone because you knew they were going to leave. And Mm -hmm. now it's sort of like, what's wrong with you? You've only had five jobs in 30 years. Now it's quite common to have seven jobs in four years. What do you want my generation to understand about how to help people grow their careers, Recruit and retain great talent that mm-hmm. they, they might need a mindset shift on.
1: Oh, let's see. How do I condense this down? I would say the first thing you need to understand, let me just give some context. You have to understand that our generation was more about long, long-term thinking. So think about a 401k or you think about growing a career Pen- a and putting pension, in time.
0: Right? A pension, right? A pension. Yeah.
1: Right. We, we, you have to put in the time to get the title. That's okay. We're, we were working towards, uh, long-term things like buying a house, but today's generation, Gen Z in particular, they're lucky to have $200 in their pocket house. Uh, having a house is out of the question for most of them. And so it's really short term and they want to think in short term, not just in terms of, I want to get paid and I want to have raises more frequently, But everything needs to come more frequently. And it's it's, it's this what's in it for me today. So as a leader that's older, you need to understand that there's three things you got to do. Number one, on the first day that you hire somebody, you have to start setting out a career path for them. You have to start saying, this is where your career can go because this generation doesn't believe in loyalty. And if you want to bend the curve on loyalty, you better paint a picture of what is possible starting day one and start to invest in their training day one. The other thing is you've got to shorten the cycle between when they get rewards. So if you're waiting for yearly appraisals, that's half their life cycle of their job. That isn't going to work. You can take the same cost envelope and you can spread it out and you can create more uh, pay that's based on performance and that will work a lot better. And the last thing that you need to do is you've got to help folks feel like owners. The deepest need of every employee, and this includes my generation, is to feel like you're making a difference. But it's on steroids with millennials and Gen Z. So if you're not good at talking to your people about what they do well, and solving that jigsaw puzzle with your team to say, are we really fully utilizing what you have to offer? Then you're gonna lose the game. Because uh, I can go in and visit about anybody in a company, and I'll ask them, how do you feel about it? And they'll say, I just am not being fully utilized. There's so much I have to offer that the company isn't tapping into. So you better be talking to your people a lot because if you can make people feel like they're needed and wanted, they'll go through a brick wall for you regardless of their age.
0: I was in China uh, just prior to the pandemic giving a keynote for a large multinational company. You would know the name if I mentioned it. And I was uh, in a pre-consult at breakfast prior to my keynote to the top like 70 leaders of this company mostly Americans and Europeans. They were having their corporate meeting in China because they had a large manufacturing base there. And at breakfast with the president of this multi-billion dollar division, I'd say she was about my age. Her gender is immaterial. We were having this conversation and she was sort of hammering the key goal being the stock price, the stock price, the stock price. And I remember challenging her, not to her pleasure, Basically saying, you know, I don't think most of your new recruits, college graduates, give a flying flip about your company's stock price. Right. I, I don't. you got to have some other value proposition because they, they might get some stock in their 401k. If they're wise, they probably wouldn't because we learned that from Enron. But would you say also to leaders they need to get really tapped into what are the needs and demands of the younger generation or they're going to lose or they're going to leave?
1: Oh, y- yes, They're already losing, in many cases, beginning day one. Here's what I would do if I were a CEO of a company. I would look at my value proposition for all generations. Because you have to speak to what the needs are for all of them. It's a little more complicated. Unfortunately, most companies are so steeped in an old way that their benefits speak to 401ks, right? Short-term, long-term disability, which Gen Z could give a flip about. And they're not even going to be there for years to take advantage of a 401k. What they care about is, can you, make, can you help me make my car payment? Is there some kind of offset for rent? Uh, you know, they care about a totally different set of things. So options and creating options for people, not just in their benefits, but in flexible work hours. Can I be a gig worker? Can I be part-time? Can I be full-time? Can I do two jobs at once? That's what many of these people care about. So companies are going to have to just revisit the values proposition and create more of a, I call it a choose your own adventure, uh, so that everybody can kind of pick what they need. Nike figured that out with their shoes many years ago, and it transformed their business, but companies haven't figured it out yet.
0: Tessa, swing the pendulum the other way. What do you Mm -hmm. want the younger generation, those who are perhaps in their 20s and 30s, to know about the culture of companies that is set by an older group, recognizing there's lots of companies where mm-hmm. 30 and 40 year olds who are very much in the C-suite. I don't mean to push that only into my generation. What do you want, what, what, what are the facts that aren't changing as fast as they should that younger upperly mobile professionals need to say, you can't have it all, you need to make mm-hmm. some, you know, uh, uh, compromises around these things. Perhaps they're too much, the demands are too restrictive.
1: Honestly, this is why I wrote the book. I wrote it for a millennial and a Gen Z population to show them they have more control than they think. I call it the bye-bye generation because they leave so quickly and think that that's the solution. But what I want them to know is you have to get better at understanding and working with rather than against a company. You have to be able to talk in terms of your results, your outcomes, because that's your leverage with a company. You can't just say, I want a raise because I want more money. You have to be able to say, this is the value that I bring. This is where I've moved the needle. You have to speak the language of the company, which is numbers. And when you can do that and come at your asks and requests and discussions with your manager from that perspective, from one of, I have what you need. Let me show you what I've been able to do for you versus I'm entitled to receive this because I am you can actually move mountains in a company. But unfortunately, right now, the belief is companies are the enemy. The first truth I talk about in the book is companies aren't the enemy. They are aligned to getting results, period. And that's not good or bad. But once you understand that, and understand how to talk to a company, you can, you can market yourself better, and you can get more focused on what you're working on that the company cares about. Work on the right things. So that you're adding value. And I think that's the big thing that a lot of the younger generation is missing.
0: Tessa, you're not a prognosticator, but are you seeing any significant shifts in careers, longevity, the way people are working? I mean, you mentioned they're not coming back. Mm-hmm. What do you want everyone to know about kind of where the puck is going? Are there some principles that aren't changing? and are there some maybe principles that in fact are changing in both sides, meaning those Mm -hmm. trying to manage their careers and those leading companies that are enlightened leaders, they know they have to make some Mm -hmm. changes. What would you say to that question, that broad question? What isn't changing that
1: I am trying to educate people on is that companies still need to be profitable. So as much as everybody wants a raise, companies still have to be able to be profitable or they don't exist. That is the sole reason that they are in business. And so it can be difficult for them to figure out what that looks like in an environment where everybody wants more. I think what we're going to see is that one of the big currencies a company has is flexibility because flexibility speaks to this generation. I want flexibility in when I work, how I work. And so I think that you're going to see flexibility be a huge lever for forever. And I'm not just talking about whether I work at home or whether I don't, I'm talking about companies offering up people the option of doing uh, co- contract work, project work, gig work, part-time, full-time. I mean, it's more complicated, but this generation stacks things on top of each other. That's kind of their thing. I want to stack jobs on top of each other. In fact, I did a post the other day, it got um, half a million views overnight, and I am shocked at how many people believe they should be able to work two full-time jobs at the same time and get paid. And I'm really shocked at how many managers are saying, yeah, as long as I get the job done, I think that's okay. I mean, that's vastly different thinking. So I do think if I prognosticate, companies are going to have to get very clear about what performance looks like and productivity looks like. And I think they're going to ha- have to offer lots of options. But I also think people cannot have their cake and eat it, too. There's got to be a balance in there somewhere. And uh, the people that adopt a little bit of this, I'm going I'm to hustle to get ahead, are the ones that are going to get ahead. And uh, more so than ever before.
0: Tessa, your book is titled The Unspoken Truths for Career Success. What are some of the unspoken truths that we don't speak about, but we need to be reminded of?
1: Hmm. Well, let me see if I can pull a couple of my favorites out. Uh, One of them speaks to this idea that working hard is going to get me a raise. That's the lie of the workforce. And I think what I want people to understand is that working hard isn't enough. Adding value is the goal. And so uh, not just focusing on your job description, which was written in a dark room probably by an HR person before they went home and posted the job, that's not the focus. The job is seeing and solving problems within your view. And I think that that's a really important truth to understand, you have to do, you have to solve the problems the company cares about the most. And that's, that's quite literally how you get noticed at work and how you get a promotion. So that's the truth that I think is really important. Um, The other one is about power, this idea of power. And a lot of people think that you have to have the right title, the right budget, the corner office, to have power in a company. And it's not true. You gain influence and power by having knowledge. And you can do this at any level. And I tell some stories about people, that cubicle guy, for example, in the book. And this was just a guy, an ordinary guy. And how every single ordinary person in a company start paying attention to what's going on in the industry start listening to quarterly reports understand what's going on in the company where the gaps are where the trends are and you can make a difference in a company at any level i think those are two really important truths of the workforce
0: tessa i usually would have asked this question in the beginning so i'm going to invite those who are still listening and watching to hang in there for two more minutes you share a very tender story in the opening of your book about why You wrote this book, and it includes something that happened in your family with your daughter and Mm -hmm. things that happened in your life. Would you kind of recap that story to maybe give voice to the millions of people who will read your book and those who will buy the book for their children or their nephews or nieces or cousins? Mm -hmm. Because you really give voice to, I think, a common challenge that I think everyone is dealing with.
1: Yes. um, I start the book with a story of... Our daughter was really struggling, and we knew that suicide was a possibility. Uh, very difficult. And I'm an executive in a very fast-moving company. I had to walk into my CEO's office and say, I- I'm going to I'm gonna have to leave. I'm going to have to take a leave of absence. And it was probably the most frightening thing that I could have ever done, because I, you just think, there won't be room for me when I come back. And I took... Um, the time off, then the day after I left, she tried to commit suicide. And it changed my perspective on everything. It changed my perspective on work and where it fit in my life and what I wanted. And I'm not unlike so many people who have ha- have done a complete revisiting of what's important to them, you know, through the last three years. And I think it changes the decisions that we make about work. And I think it changes, um, you know, how much we're willing to, to die on that sort of work. And so I'm not alone in it. And it really started my journey. And I made a very thoughtful year and a half exit to that with that company. And it it made me think about what's going on with other people and and how you how I could help people frame this up, how I could help them have a better experience while they were at work, but also think through what do they want and be more deliberate. So the career doesn't happen to them. They instead are very deliberate about the career that they're trying to build and what's important.
0: Tessa, thank you for your vulnerability. You're known as the job doctor to millions across social media. Your book is a perhaps the most valuable career manual that I have read, The Unspoken Truths for Career Success, Navigating Pay, Promotions and Power at Work. Tessa White, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. And we'll see you back next week for a new conversation on leadership.